Our scripture reading this morning comes from Exodus chapter 33, verses 1 through 16, and can be found on page 73 in the Pew Bible. Exodus 33, 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, All the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant, Joshua the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, Do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? This is God's word. Would you join me in prayer as we ask God to speak with us this morning? Father, we come to you this morning. Uh, We want to hear from you. We ask that you would help us to open our hearts this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you will take away all the distractions that we have in our lives, in our thoughts, in our minds. 
Uh, we pray that we would be able to uh, focus on your word this morning. Uh, we want to hear from your word and, and we want to hear your voice. And we pray that you'll speak to our hearts in areas that we need to repent, we need to change, and areas, Lord, where we need to trust in you. And I pray, Lord, that you would be our hope and our trust in every area of our lives, Lord. So that, Lord, that we'll be able to serve you today and the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have ever read the novel, uh, The Hobbit by, by Tolkien, or even if you have seen the movie, you know, this is a story of a group of dwarves who are heading towards this um, lonely mountains, and their goal is to defeat this dragon, their goal is to, you know, come back with the treasures that they find in that mountains. And with this group of dwarves, there's always, uh, there's this character by the name Gandalf the Grey. And this character has some uh, supernatural powers, uh, great wisdom. And at many times in their journey, Gandalf the Grey kind of helps them in, in difficult situations. But at one point in their journey, they come to a place called Mirkwood Forest. And Gandalf the Grey breaks the news saying that he's not going to be part of their journey anymore, uh, that he has to leave them. And the reaction with these dwarves is, you know, they start to groan, uh, you know, they, they are sad, they are grieved. And if you read, it says even Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, you know, he starts to weep um, that Gandalf the Grey is going to leave. A loss of a great person, whether if it's an army, if it's within a team, uh, it, it, it sends a sense of hopelessness, a sense of mourning. And we saw that in last year when the NFL season started, right? When it was announced that Brady was suspended for four games, the whole Pats nation was, you know, they were hopeless. They thought, well, will we go to the playoffs, and when we come to this chapter in Exodus chapter 33, that's the sense of feeling, that's the, the atmosphere within the nation of Israel. And just to understand this context, you know, we have been looking at the book of Exodus and we see that God chooses this special group of people. He brings them out of Egypt. He protects them. He provides for them. And then... He gives them a detailed plan of what he wants to build, a tabernacle, and he wants to reside with them right in the center of the chosen people. And then last week we saw what happens when Moses and Joshua are up in the mountain uh, receiving the commandments from God, and we find the people not able to wait for uh, their return. They get impatient. And they ask Aaron to build an image so that they can contain God within what they want him to be. And they start worshipping him. And then we also saw that God is angry and we find Moses breaking the, the, the tablets. And then there's this sense of what is God going to do with us? We have sinned against God and what is God going to do with us? 
And that's where we left last week. And we're going to start from, from right there, and we'll see what happens in chapter 33. And today, just for our understanding, uh, you know, I've, I've divided this uh, 16 verses into three areas. The first is the withdrawal of God's presence, the location of God's presence, and the, re- the restoration of God's presence. If you look at verses 1 to 3, the chapter starts like this. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. You know, if you read the first three verses, on the outset you will find, okay, everything is good. God doesn't seem to be uh, reacting in any way uh, by the sin of Israel. It is just to show that God on his side of the covenant was keeping his promise. When he brought out the people out of Egypt, and even to, um, if you go way back to Genesis chapter 12, God, what he promised to Abraham, that he is going to choose a group of people, and he is going to give them a land of milk and honey, God was keeping that promise. And even when God called Moses and saying that he was going to use them to take this group of people and take them to the promised land, God was keeping his promise. So there was no change in the plan what God was doing to his people. And even it says that God was going to protect them from from their enemies. Not only is he going to give them the promise what he gave for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he was going to send an angel so that if there's any, uh, you know, Anything coming from his enemies of, you know, the Canaanites, where they're going to go to, the Amorites, or the other people group who are going to come and wage war against them, God says that I will protect you. This angel is going to go, and, you know, you'll be safe, and you'll be going into this land of milk and honey. But if you see carefully, there's a distance in the relationship between God and his people. If you see verse 1, it says, Depart, go up from here. You and the people whom you have brought out out of the land of Egypt. In the beginning of the book of Exodus, you would see time and again God calling Israelites, my people, whom I have brought out. And in last chapter, if we, if we, you know, you see, and what we heard last week, God saying to Moses, your people, the, 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 the people that you brought out, And in chapter 33, we see God saying, you and the people, as if God didn't know who they were. Uh, Their relationship was strained there because of the sin of Israelites. And it was not God who brought them. God was telling that someone that you brought them. And it's all because of the sin that took place in the previous chapter. When Israelites saw God's work right through their journey, his hand protecting, providing, and keeping them safe, still they were looking for something else rather than God. God was keeping his promise, but then God breaks the bad news. In verse 3 he says, but I will not go up among you. 
And this was what caused the hopelessness. Israelites assumed that God is going to go with them no matter what is going to happen. Even though they sinned, God is still going to be with them. And God breaks the bad news. God was not going to go with them as they expected. His people have ignored their covenant. They've sinned against him. They were seeking a form of God by creating an idol. God brought them out of Egypt to provide them with this law to build the tabernacle and to be with them and to reside with them. But rather than keeping that promise and covenant, the people have gone astray looking for something else. One of the authors, John Curid, he says, God had given the Hebrews instructions to build a sanctuary so that he would reside among the people. They instead made a calf as a physical representation of God's being with them. Now Yahweh threatens to remove from the true symbol of his presence. So this was a situation where Israel, they were never thought was coming. The God who brought them out of Egypt, the God who gave them his promise was not going to be with them because of sin. And you know, it's a universal truth even today. Sin is something that divides us from our relationship with God. And right through the story you would see in chapter 33, 1 to 16, you would see the gospel being just happening right there. The Israelites sinning, and then you will see in the later part of the verses that how God responds to their sin by His grace. But here we find sin is something that even in our lives today, that what breaks our relationship with God. And right from the time of Adam, when Adam sinned, it affects us as humans. And as believers, we seek after idols, we sin and go after idols which give us temporary pleasure. And last week, we heard how these idols, you know, are manufactured in our hearts every day, that we keep looking after them day after day, rather than one true God. The irony was, you know, Israel wanted Aaron to fashion an idol for them so that they could feel assured that their God was with them. But the idol precisely did the opposite. It threatened to take the real presence of God from them. The very thing that Israel tried to promote, that God was with them, was something that they were now not having. Now the Israelites have the promised land, but they don't have the promiser. The Israelites have the blessing but they don't have the blesser. So God declares that he is not going to be with them. If you go down to verse 4 and 6, it reads, When the people heard this disastrous word, they moaned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I might know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of the ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. So God had given or said what he's going to do because of people's sin. 
And now we see the pe- how the people respond. So the news spreads around the camp saying that God is not going to be with them. They are going to go, the, go to the promised land, but God is not going to be with them. So the Israelites remove their ornaments, and God tells them to take away the ornaments. And this, in the, in the Old Testament, was a sign of repentance. You know, even if you go back to uh, the book of Genesis, you will find uh, Jacob telling his family to remove the ornaments uh, because of idolatry. So here, when they realized that they have been looking or going after idols, it was a sign that God was telling them to remove the ornaments. And the, and the, and the, and the people, when God said to remove it, it's, it says in verse 6, the people stripped themselves of the ornaments. It was not just their attitude that they wanted to repent, but it was also in the action that they wanted to show, that they truly meant they were repenting of what sin that they have committed. They realized that the presence of God which was with them, uh, guiding them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, uh, protecting them from enemies, uh, was something more that they wanted than anything else. They were in their distress, wanted to make right with God. A.W. Pink says, the removal of their ornaments was for the purpose of evidencing the genuineness of their contrition. Outward adornment was out of keeping with taking of a low place before God. Contrarywise, external attractions and displays show up the absence of the lowliness of spirit and brokenness of heart, which are of great price in the sight of God. The more true spirituality declines, the more an elaborate ritual comes to the fore. God told them to take off, and the people strip off the ornaments. And it was a genuine repentance that the people showed in the sight of God. Uh, Another interesting thought here is the Israelites took out all the jewelry in the last chapter, the ornaments, and they built an image so that they can worship it. And in this chapter, they remove all the jewelry so that they wanted to make right things with God. And the same Israelites will use the same ornaments and jewelry for the building of the tabernacle. So you find that their repentance was not just within this chapter, but They were ready to make things right with God and they were ready to have God's presence in their life always. And this morning, this is something that we need to think about. What or how we see God's presence in each one of our lives. Many a times, you know, we take granted for God's presence. Many a times we Assume God is with us even though we sin. And a lot of times we look at material blessings or, or things in our lives, if, if it happens right, then you know, we seem to enjoy our walk with God. How many times have we thought of salvation as a blessing? How many times have we thought forgiveness of sin as a blessing? Adoption as a blessing. Our personal relationship with Christ as a blessing. We tend to forget that having God with us is the greatest blessing more than anything else. 
In Ephesians 1.3, Paul says that, you know, we are blessed with every spiritual blessings in Christ. But a lot of times we tend to focus our, our definition of blessing to things which are material rather than who we have. John Piper sums this really good. He says, the gospel of Jesus and his many precious blessings are not ultimately what makes the good news good, but means of seeing and savoring the Savior himself. Forgiveness is good because it opens the way to enjoying God himself. Justification is good because it wins access to the presence and pleasure of God himself. Eternal life is good because it becomes the everlasting enjoyment of Jesus. All God's good gifts are loving to the degree that they lead us to God himself. This is the love of God, doing everything necessary, most painfully in the death of his son, to enthrall us with what is most deeply and durably satisfying, namely himself. So the Israelites realized that they, they, they repented and they were needing of God's presence in their life more than anything more than their idols that they were creating, more than uh, all the other rituals that they were creating. It was God himself that they needed in their lives and in their journey. And as believers, we need God and we need to count it a privilege that having God's presence in our life more than anything else in our lives. And after the Israelites repent, uh, now there's a, a, a suspense building in the camp. What is God going to do? God said he's not going to come with us. And uh, the Israelites have responded by saying, you know, that they, they, they needed God. They desperately needed God. And then in the next section of the chapter, verses 7 to 11, you would find that it, if you just read it, you would, you would think that it's out of place. It is talking about Moses um, going to the tent of meeting and having this conversation with God. In verses 7 to 11, it says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door, and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing in the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned against Turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man would not depart from the tent. We see now that after God has told that he's got to go and now the people have repented, we are given a glimpse of what Moses was doing. Uh, Moses would rise up and, you know, he would go, he pitched the tent uh, outside the camp, far away from the people because of the sin. And there he would have uh, the conversation with God. And God would come down in his glory and the people when they see it, uh, they would rise and they would worship uh, together uh, with Moses. There was clearly a distance between God and the people. 
So the tension grows as to whether God, uh, God will speak to Moses and when he comes out, what he would tell the people of Israel. Uh, we need to remember the tent of meeting was not the same place as the tabernacle. A uh, tabernacle was something that will be built later as the, as the people uh, continue their journey. But in the tent of meeting was a temporary place where Moses and God spoke as a friend to each other. And it says the presence of God would come as a pillar of cloud uh, around the tent to show that God's glorious presence right there with Moses. Because Moses has experienced this right from the start when his experience in the burning bush where he saw God's presence uh, reflected in the, in the burning bush and right through the journey. And even here we, we find that he has this intimate relationship with God where he can talk to God face to face. We find there's still a deep level of intimacy between Moses and God uh, even though the people have sinned against God. The tent of meeting was a place where Moses interceded. Moses was standing as a mediator for the people of Israel. Just a few things here that we can take from this uh, the section of the verses. Uh, we find that Moses was mediating for the people of Israel. Uh, he was... Even though God said he was not going to go with them, Moses was standing there on behalf of the people and he speaks for the people. Uh, Moses clearly here is the foreshadow of who Christ is going to, uh, what Christ was going to do in the, in the Gospels. Moses was standing as the mediator for the people of Israel and Christ in the Gospel stands as the mediator for, for the humankind and God. We find that Moses was a picture of Jesus and he was standing there to to represent the people. And it clearly shows that most of the Old Testament characters, we find that they were kind of foreshadowing what Christ was going to do in the Gospels. And today we have, we find that Christ in the Scriptures came down as a mediator. He came down to to build that relationship, to mend that broken relationship between God and us. In 1 Timothy 2.5 it says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And Moses was just a picture showing what Christ was going to do uh, later. And not only was Moses being a mediator, but Moses was being an intercessor. He was praying on behalf of the people. He was not ready to let go of God's promises, what he had spoken uh, earlier in the, in the book of Exodus. He was ready to stand there and, and reminding God of all his promises. And he was seeking God to uh, be with them. He was seeking God's presence in their lives, in their journey to the promised land. And that's the same thing that applies to us today, to Christ is our intercessor today. And Moses was foreshadowing what Christ was going to do in the Gospels. And today we find in John chapter 17, you know, we we see that Christ intercedes for for the sake of all believers. Uh, He's praying that that prayer that he's interceding for all the believers with the disciples. 
And also, as believers, we don't have to wait outside the camp, uh, just like the people of Israelites did today. Uh, the, the people of Israelites would just stand up when Moses would go to the tent of the meeting, and they would just stand in a distance, and they would just uh, uh, see what Moses was hearing from God. And as God's children today, we don't have to wait outside the camp. We, 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 are, we are not constrained to God's presence in a building. In, in, you know, we don't need a special uh, person here to, to have that access to God. The work is done on the cross. And Christ has mediated that relationship. He has mended that relationship. And through Christ, we can have that access to God. Romans chapter 8, verse 34, Paul says, Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us? He has also not mediated the way for us. He is sitting at the right hand of God and interceding interceding for us. For For the times we sin, Christ is interceding for us on a continuous basis. And also, Jesus never leaves our camp. You know, you, we read the relationship between Moses and uh, God. It says that Moses would speak to God face to face. And uh, many people think, you know, how can, how can Moses uh, see God face to face? Here, if, you know, it, it's, a, uh, it's not literal to take that, you know, Moses was seeing God. Because in the later ch- part of the chapter... Uh, verse 20, you would find that God telling Moses, uh, Moses, nobody can see me and live. So this was a, a figure of speech used, used to show the closeness of their relationship. Uh, it was a figure of speech showing their direct communication that Moses had with God, that he would converse with God, he would know what plans God had, and then he would take it to the people. So he was a friend who knew each, uh, God so well. And again, you would see this uh, picture again in the gospel. Christ being the mediator, Christ being the intercessor, and now Christ being a friend to us as believers. In John 15, verse 14 and 15, uh, Jesus tells his disciples, You are my friends. I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. And as believers today, we have that relationship that we can call Christ our friend. Moses was called a friend of God. And Jesus today died to secure that friendship, to secure that relationship that we didn't have. And, and the good news is we don't have to do anything. We just had to repent and put our trust in the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and having that friend in your lives, no matter what happens in your life and in my life, even though we sin and we go uh, away from God, the Bible says that He is still with us. Uh, that when I first became a Christian, one of the, the things that uh, really um, uh, kind of kept me from you know, wanting to grow in God was um, 
I shared in my testimony, I think a couple of months back, was the guilt that I had every time I would sin when I became a believer. I thought I was the only person that I was struggling with this. Uh, that God was never happy with me. Uh, God was never going to use me uh, with, my, with my gifts. Uh, God is not going to you know, ever uh, use me for His ministry or His glory. Uh, so I realized that guilt kind of takes us away from God. Uh, but Jesus being our friend, He's going to be with us forever. It's not because of my life and what I do. It's because of what He has done on the cross. And every time now that I see how God looks at me, it's not God is looking at me, Naveen, as somebody who goes to church every Sunday, uh, who you know goes to the Sunday school, helps in the ministry. God is not looking at my works. God is looking at me through Christ. Every day God is looking at me through Christ, the perfect work of Christ. And even I sin, it's not God is going to hold me for that sin. Yes, we are called to repent and come back to Him, but it's, our, my salvation is not based on my works or my day-to-day actions. My salvation is solely based on the work of Christ. And Jesus as a friend has already accomplished that. He's done that on the cross and he is calling us to, to have that friendship, that close relationship with him, reading his word, praying and having that communication with him. And this morning, if you're plagued with that thought and you have you know, ever thought that God is never happy with you, uh, he, is, you know, he is too distant from you, even though you have put your trust in Christ, remember that, the, that your salvation is not based on your works. And every time God sees you, He's seeing you through Christ, who's the perfect sacrifice. And if you're not a believer, and you've never imagined God being a friend to you, the Bible clearly says that Christ is a friend, and He came down to die for each one of us. And every other religion, we have to go towards God. The concept of God being a friend is its mind blowing to a lot of uh, my non-Christian friends who are from other religions. So this concept of God being a friend, a friend of sinners, is something that is in the Bible as something that God wants to build a relationship with. So we find, we have, taken in, we have shown that Moses is going to you know, uh, go to this tent and he's having this conversation. And the third part of this, this uh, chapter this morning uh, we are not only shown what Moses was doing, but we are also shown what is happening inside the tent of the meeting. If you read verses 12 to 16, it says, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know, know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, Please show me your ways, that I might know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too this, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in you going with us, so that we are distinct? 
I and your people from every other people in the face of the earth. So after, after showing the relationship between Moses and God, we are now taken into, uh, we are given a glimpse of what is the conversation that's happening inside the tent. And verses 12 to 16 has, you know, two parts, where first Moses is asking something for himself, and then Moses is asking something for the, the people of Israel. We find Moses, firstly, he asks, you know, uh, in verse 12, he says, uh, but you have not let me know who you will be sending with me. Uh, remember in, in chapter, uh, the, the beginning of the chapter, God is telling him, I will send an angel. So here, Moses is wanting to make sure that the angel that God was sending is not just an angel, uh, but he is making sure that God is the one who is going to come with them. He doesn't want anyone else, but he was wanting to make sure that God was with them till you know, they enter the promised land. He was asking God, you know, not only from the protection from, from the enemies, uh, but he wanted God's presence with them right through the, the, the journey. Moses reminded God that, you know, he was being chosen by him and he has found it favor in, in God's sight. And he is reminding God all the, uh, the promises that he had spoken to him. In verse 13 he says, Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways, that I might know you in order to find favor in your sight. So Moses was in a way conversing with God, asking God, You have told me that you have chosen me. You, you are the one who chose me. Uh, you are the one who said that you have, uh, I have found favor in your sight. And he's saying, now, show it to me. He wanted to know who the angel was first. And then he wanted to uh, make sure that this communication that he was having with God was something that he's going to have right through the journey. And it was not just going to end here. And God responds. We see in verse 13. Sorry, verse 14. It says, and God said, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. So Moses being the intercessor, Moses being the mediator, who's asking God to be with him and the people, and God responds because of the repentance of the people's heart and Moses' intercession. God says, my presence will go with you. And literally what it means is, my face will go with you right through your journey. It was not God's face literally, but it was... God's presence right in the center of their camp, which was going to go with them. The relationship now is God is outside the camp, but now God says, I'm going to be right in the center, right through your journey, and that's what I'm going to do. And it's the same picture that we have today. That, you know, we sin, and we repent, and right now we have this relationship with Christ. God's presence is with us. And again, this is something that is mind-blowing to people from other religions. When you say that God is with you, God resides with you when you become a believer, is something, you know, it's, it's hard, hard for people to comprehend. But right from the beginning, even from the, uh, you know, Matthew chapter 1 verse 20, 
when the angel was giving the good news to Mary, uh, he said, Behold, the virgin shall be with a child and shall bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, God with us. So God was not going to temporarily come and pitch his presence in different times of history. God is going to come as in a human form and he's going to reside with us. And that's what happened when Christ came in his incarnation and he lived among us. In John 1.14 it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father. And that's the presence we have as believers today. Uh, and the verse that we read this morning during the worship, Matthew 28, 20, and Jesus says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And even when Jesus was leaving after his resurrection, he said, um, sorry, before his resurrection in John 14, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it, is neither, it neither sees him or, nor know him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And today the presence of God is with us as believers. Uh, We don't have to go seeking for a place um, like many religions do. uh, But we have the Spirit of God living in us. And the question for us today is, you know, do we count it a privilege knowing that God's presence is with us always. Even when we sin, He is with us. So Moses first asked God so that God would be with them um, and make sure that, you know, what promise He had told Moses that God would keep His promise. And God responds with saying that my presence will be with you. And then Moses doesn't stop there. In verses, you know, he, he continues verses 14 and 16. He asks God to not only be with him, uh, but also be with the nation of Israel. You will see when God responds, he says, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. It is singular. So Moses again is responding to God and saying, God, it's not only me who needs you, it's the nation of Israel. We need you as we journey and go to this promised land. Moses' request reminds God of his covenant promise to Israel. He was hinting that he wanted God to not only go with him, but with the whole nation of Israel. He was emphasizing that unless God agreed to go with them, the Israelites were not interested in the promised land. Uh, John Murray, he writes, he says, uh, If the Lord is not prepared to show his presence with his people as distinct from merely with Moses himself, then they have lost their special calling and status as the Lord's covenant people. And there is no point in them moving forward to the land. It would be better to remain in the wilderness at Sinai than to enter Canaan without the Lord's full blessing and endorsement. Moses understood what this exodus was all about. It was not about the people. It was not about what's happening uh, with with the other group of people. Moses exactly knew that this was part of God's plan for saving the whole world. He knew that the only way Israel would fit in this plan was having 
God at the center of their lives. What makes Israel distinct from other people? It was not their land, because they still didn't have a land. It was not their wealth, because other nations had more treasure and riches. It was not their culture, because they had been living in slavery. It was not their righteousness, because they have not even kept a basic command of God. The only thing that Israel had them going was their relationship with God. That was the only thing they had. And that's, that's what made them to repent. Because everything else was nothing. The presence of God was something that they needed for their lives. And today, the presence of God is something that we as a church, we as individual believers, uh, is the only thing we have. It's not our works. It's not how beautiful our building is. It's not how much we give. It's not what matters. What matters, what keeps us distinct from other people and other religions is the relationship that we have with the true and living God. Do we count it a privilege to have this presence of God in our lives, in our day-to-day lives? Or do we take it for granted? And it's not only the presence of God living within us in our day-to-day life, the Holy Spirit of God convicting us, comforting us, speaking to us. But one day, it will be even more real in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the Word of God says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And that's the promise we have as believers. No other religion can say that their relationship with God is something that they are sure of. Uh, When I became a Christian... I, you know, I would tell my friends, I just read the word and I just prayed to God right at my house. And for them, again, it was something that they cannot, they couldn't comprehend. For them, it was either a place that they had to go and pray to God. It was a certain person who can take their request to God. But only in, in, in Christianity is God resides in us. The Spirit of God lives in us. And he's the one that we have our personal relationship with. And the presence of God living in us is something that we need to to be, you know, knowing that it's a blessing that each one of us have. And finally, not only the presence of God is going to be, or we are going to face Jesus uh, one day, but in Revelation 21.3, it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So it's not only the Spirit of God living in us, 
Not only we're we going to see Christ face to face one day, but one day we're going to living in the presence of God, right where God is, and that's the promise we have as believers. And that's the that's the what keeps us distinct from every other faith and religion. And this truth is something the Israelites realized that without the presence of God they cannot continue their journey and they cannot do anything and in the following weeks you know we'll be looking in the book of exodus how god prepares them even as they enter uh, the promised land but this morning i just want to ask a couple of questions as believers do we count it a privilege having the presence of God in our lives as, as a community that we come together worshipping God. Uh, because a lot of countries, even meeting together uh, is something that you know they don't have. But as believers in Christ, do we count it a privilege that we come here and God's presence is here as we worship Him? And even in our individual in our homes, do we realize that we carry God's presence? And that we are having that relationship with Him. And secondly, for, for those who have not put their faith in Christ, it's something that to think about. To have this relationship with Christ, to be a friend of God, it's only through Christ. And I encourage you to pray and, and read the Word and see that through Christ, that God will speak to you and that you would put your trust in Christ. What a privilege, what a blessing that we have. God's presence is with us and living with us. Let's pray. God of grace, This morning we come and repent that many a times that we uh, take you for granted. We take your spirit for granted. But Lord, we thank you this morning that for reminding to each one of us that, that you live in us. That you are there for us always. At times when we fail, at times where we look, we run to other gods, you're always there, Lord. And this morning we repent and we ask that, that you'll help us to put our hope that we would be satisfied in you. Help us, Lord, to love you supremely. Help us to serve you wholly, Lord, and to admire you beautifully. I pray that you'll grant us to never lose sight of this the sinfulness of sin the exceeding righteousness of your salvation the beauty of your holiness the wonder of your grace and your ever comforting presence that is always with us till with till we will be with you lord one day I pray that our lives would be distinct Uh, because of our relationship with you, 
that we would be bold in our witness. And we pray that you'll ask and continue to speak to us this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.